Thank you, Tim. Thank you, praise team. What a wonderful time of worship we have had, and as we think of who God is and just take great assurance in Him. And so let me invite you, if you would, grab your copy of God's Word. You can turn with me to the book of 1 John, and uh, we are in 1 John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13, and if you don't have a Bible with you and uh, you want one, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. You can take that home with you. You can put your name in it. That's our gift to you this morning. You can turn uh, to 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13, and what we're going to see, we're really very close to the end of 1 John. Uh, We'll finish next week, and we've seen God... Uh, teach us some amazing things as we have walked together through this wonderful book, really aiming and directing us all towards knowing Jesus and all of the the ways in which that has shaped and should shape our lives. And as we come into this passage, as we think about where we are and really what we're going to be looking at, we come in need of great assurance. Uh, We sang of that just a few moments ago. Uh, speaking of the assurance that we have forgiveness, the assurance of knowing Christ as Savior and Lord, the, the assurance of, as we might say it, knowing that you know that you know Christ, uh, just that settled assurance of having Him. We like a guarantee, right? That's why you like to buy a warranty, because maybe you don't trust the product enough. You want that extra guarantee because you want to know that what you have is going to be all right. We like the assurance of knowing the truth of what we have in the settled confidence that we can have in it. How much more so should that be the case in knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord? So grab your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13, and we are going to see, even through this very interesting passage of Scripture, how Christ leads us right into the assurance of Him and the living hope that He provides. Read with me, if you will, 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13, which says this. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this moment now you would capture our attention. Lord, that you would capture our affection. That in all the details of all of what we are thinking about and all of the things that have consumed our minds over the past several days and even in these moments now, Father, we lay them all before you and ask that by your Spirit you would teach us, you would lead us and guide us to know and to trust the assurance of knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord. Father, we pray that the light of your Word would shine with clarity upon each and every life here today, that we may come away knowing that we know that we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Father, in all things, be glorified as we walk through your word together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we come into this passage, and really as we come right towards the tail end of 1 John, as we always do, it's very helpful to remember 
where we have been. We've talked about the assurance of knowing God and the wonderful demonstrations of uh, the love of God expressed through Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and rising from the dead. We talked about the overcoming of the world, the confidence that we have in Christ, and even last week in talking about the assurance of the testimony of God himself that testifies concerning the truth of what we know of Jesus. And even concluding in verse 12 of whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And just the wonderful clarity that's provided there. And so it's right on the heels of that statement that we read, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. As we see here, we are reminded this is written, the audience here is directed towards believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, to trust in the identity and mission of Jesus, knowing that you have been saved by grace through faith in God. It's, it's all of His doing. It's not of your own works so that you may not boast. As we may think of it, even as we find it expressed in the Gospel of John in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. That as we read this, we are reminded this directive of turning God's people to look with assurance upon who we have in Jesus Christ. And so on the one hand, we see how comforting and how good God is to take the time to do this for believers. And at the same time, we feel how this is, in a lot of ways, an invitation for those who don't have this kind of hope. For all the ways in which you've built your life on things that don't matter and that do not sustain It's an invitation to come and know He who gives living hope. What we see here as we think about this, and even as He expresses it in this way, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. And as we like to often say, as we listen to people, as we're following along in conversations, you may not ever say it out loud, but sometimes you say it in your head, what are you getting at? Or we might say it even with a finer point, What is your point? He tells us here, right? I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The aim here is assurance, this comfort for the believer to know that you know that you know Christ. What we see is in this, even in this expression, is how good our God is to go so far out of His way to give us assurance. To call us back, to look to His faithfulness. We like it when other people in our lives go out of their way to express some manner of concern. Look at how good our God is. Look at all the things that we have talked about in 1 John. And even still, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we are being led to rest all of our hope and all of our assurance in Him. We need this. We need the kind of assurance that's not rooted in our own emotion, that's not rooted in our own selves, that is rooted in God through Jesus Christ. I write to you that you may know that you have eternal life. Because life itself has a tendency to knock us around, doesn't it? Has a tendency to to shake the foundation of what our life is built upon. We need to know that in Christ we have hope no matter what may come. That we would have assurance of eternal life in the midst of crises and loss and fears. And that when you know that you have eternal life, it will put joy into your sorrows. That when you know that you have eternal life, there is hope in the midst of what looks so hopeless. 
That when you know eternal life, it shapes the way you prioritize your own life. As you measure your own days. And that even as we think about defining terms, and even defining terms within the context of where we find them here in 1 John, as we think of eternal life, what we're really talking about is the full enjoyment of the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The full enjoyment of the forgiveness of sin, the full enjoyment of the comfort that He brings, the full enjoyment of His grace, the full enjoyment of His love, and seeing it expressed in the cross, and seeing even His ongoing work as our advocate, as we learned in 1 John chapter 2. That we readily see the benefit in every area of life when we can say, oh, I know a guy for that, right? Something breaks in your house, be like, hey, I know a guy. You get your phone out and you text him or call him. Got something going on with your teeth? Hey, I know a good dentist. Got something going on with your health? Hey, I've got a good doctor. Got something going on with your car? Hey, I've got a good car guy. Got a, a need for a surgeon? Hey, I know who to call. She's wonderful. When you know someone, there's great comfort that comes with that. How much more so in knowing Jesus Christ, the Son of God, how much more so should that remind us of the depth of the assurance that we have in Him? But are we enjoying the benefits of this? Well, we can make the statements all day long. We can quote John 3.16 all, all day long. But are we walking in the enjoyment of the benefits of knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord? How are we to do so? Well, one of the ways in which the text makes very clear is that we are to do so in prayer. He says in verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that we, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. How deep should our confidence be? That we, we have access to the creator and sustainer of all things. That when we ask for wisdom and trust that he gives it, we're asking from he who is the fountainhead of all wisdom himself. And that the assurance of eternal life gives assurance in daily life. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be easy and everything's going to be hunky-dory and it's all sunshine and lollipops. We all know that's not true. We're told repeatedly throughout various places of Scripture, when you suffer, when you face trials of various kinds, when it's going to be hard, when you face difficulty, as we live as pilgrims and exiles, we have the assurance of eternal life and we must enjoy the benefits of knowing Christ, such as if you ask anything... This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Amen. Ask anything? Yes, that's what it says, isn't it? Now, immediately our imaginations start to run wild here because we start to say, I can think of anything, right? I can think of all sorts of things. And it starts to go all over the place, doesn't it? But we need to remember here and read carefully as we walk together in His Word that we have this very helpful, qualifying statement. Because we don't come to the Lord as some sort of cosmic genie. We don't come to Him dragging around all of our selfish desires and say, hey, give me this like a spoiled little child. We come to Him. We ask anything according to His will. According to his design, 
according to his plan, his intent, his desire. And so even with this right here, we know enough that we should know how we ought to pray. Jesus taught us to pray the exact same way, did he not? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And so we can think this through. We start to make application of it. Are we aiming to glorify Christ, to honor him, to, as we pray for things in Jesus' name? Because you wouldn't come and say, Lord, I just want you to fill my pockets full of money. Even though I know you told me godliness with contentment is great gain, I really want you to fulfill this selfish desire. Would you do that in Jesus' name? We see how foolish that is? God, I know that I shouldn't be involved in this relationship, and it's very biblically clear that I shouldn't be involved in this, but I want you to bless what I know is wrong already. That doesn't make any sense, does it? God, I need you to affirm what I, I know is wrong. I just need you to affirm me in my own sin. No, that's not. How, he's better than that. He's, he's too good to do that. To allow us to presume upon his grace. That he leads us to have the greater assurance of trusting him. Lord, foster holiness in my life. Make me more Christ-like. Increase my gratitude. Stir in me joy and make me make you known. No matter what the circumstances may be. So that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He's not dismissive of us. You think of how much time we spend trying to get the attention of people who do not care anything about us. So much of the basis, basis of how so many people function and really get addicted to social media functions on the basis of trying to get the attention of people who don't care anything about you. Because you put something on there, and then you feel like, oh, i got to check it. And then you check it, and you see who liked it. And then you start to wonder, why, why didn't someone else like it? I, I know they saw it. Maybe they didn't see it. Maybe I need to put it on here. Maybe I need to boost my post. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves just sort of tied down into an overwhelming anxiety, trying to garner the attention when we don't realize we have the omniscient God who hears us. As we bring every need before him and we cry out to him, we have the confidence to know that he hears us. And that so many of us, what we need is not merely somebody to walk into our lives and fix it. We need to know that somebody heard us, don't we? Isn't that a common refrain among married couples, right? One, one of, usually it's the man, right? Mr. Fix-It. There's an issue that comes up, your precious wife wants to talk about it, and all you can think of is, how can we fix it? It's like, no, 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 you need to hear me. Hear me out. We need to know that we've been heard. In Christ, we've been heard. The creator and sustainer of all things hears us. All those whimpering cries that we cry out when nobody is looking, all those requests that we bring before him that we cannot bring before anyone else, he hears us. Even when we find ourselves saying like we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I trust in you. What a wonderful promise we have here that he hears us as we ask anything according to his will. And... Verse 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now remember here, 
This whatever we ask is qualified by according to His will. This is not the sort of name it and claim it garbage that you will find all over television. We are not children making demands of the Father and twisting His arm to give us our way. We are surrendering ourselves to the will of the Lord Himself. And we know that if He hears us and we know His character and His glory and His perfection and His holiness, His kindness, His mercy, we know that we have the requests asked of Him. If it's His will, we'll have it. And so all of our confidence is in Him, that He knows best. And then as we pray according to His will, we need to see that it is God's grace when He gives us something and it is also God's grace when He withholds us something. We need to trust him enough to say, your will be done. And then as we read this, we have to ask ourselves, what do you want from him? Your will or his will? We have such great assurance in his will. His way is best. His way is perfect. He's leading. He's guiding. Align your will with His. That you would pray and pray to the end that, Lord, stir me to rejoice always and pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God for me in Christ Jesus. Lord, that you would take whatever circumstance I'm in and, Lord, use it for my sanctification, that you would shape me ever increasingly into the image of Christ. Father, stir in me a greater sense of love an understanding of your goodness and grace. Or even as the Apostle Paul described in, in the beginning of Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has, has been used to advance the gospel. That we would look at our own circumstances and even the difficulties in our lives and say, Lord, advance the gospel through this, whatever means necessary. When you know that you have life, you can enjoy the benefits of knowing Him. But the benefits that we have are not just for ourselves. That we are to exercise the benefits of knowing Jesus for one another as well. And in verse 16, we get led into a very interesting discussion here. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death. And it's helpful to pause right there and start to define our terms. What are we talking about here? You see, the idea is not that we run around policing everybody, but the idea is that we are paying attention to one another. That we love one another another enough to care about what's going on in the lives of one another. And we see this in just about every other area of life. It bothers us when we know that someone is sick. It bothers us when we know somebody is struggling or suffering. It bothers us and we get broken over that. We should have that same kind of concern when there is sin in the life of a believer. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, the concern is over brothers and sisters in Christ who are walking and maybe walking in a way in which you are entrenched in a sin even right now. But we need to define the terms here. Because he mentions two things in verse 16. He mentions sin not leading to death, and he mentions sin leading to death. 
And so if you start to look at the words and you start to think even in the broader context of 1 John, you start to see very clearly that every time death and life are contrasted in 1 John, we're talking about spiritual things. We're talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. You can find it even specifically articulated in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He's talking in spiritual terms here. So that's, and this is not just 3.14. You can see this. I mean, life, spiritual life is used repeatedly eight times in 1 John. So we're speaking of eternal life and eternal death. So there is sin that does not lead to death. And notice, as that is articulated, he's speaking as it relates to a brother in Christ. When he speaks of sin that leads to death, he does not mention a brother in Christ. Because for those who know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are forgiven in him. And his grace is sufficient to cover you. So as we read this, we know that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are forgiven in Christ. He is your propitiation. He died on the cross for your sin and he rose from the dead. There's forgiveness in life in his name. You're reconciled to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And you are secure in him. But believers still sin, don't they? See, we need the kind of assurance that transcends our circumstances and even the reality of the own, our own problems that we have. Because believe it or not, you still sin. On this side of heaven, we will all continue to walk in that difficult road. And we must remember, as it was articulated in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The picture is that our sin should lead us right back into this posture of repentance and trusting that Jesus is sufficient. That's the picture here. And that sin in the life of the believer does not lead to ultimate condemnation. And so you enjoy his grace and forgiveness as you walk in this posture of repentance and faith. So it does not justify sin in any way. But it also leads us to a place where we're not just lost in our own guilt. Because it's so easy, as, even as a believer, to say, oh, well, here I go again. And you get almost, woe is me. I just can't do it. I just can't get over this. I can't believe I did it again. And you see what's going on there. It's this cycle of focusing on yourself, even in your own sin. And it's dangerous. This tendency in the heart of man to just get lost in this overwhelming abundance of self-analysis is a trap. What we're being called to is to leave, not have any confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is in Christ. To look to Him. Our forgiveness is in Him. When we are reminded and we hear the whispers, you're not good enough, I know, but my Jesus is. Sure in Him in His grace, and in His forgiveness. So there is sin that does not lead to death. There is sin that does not lead to ultimate condemnation that is in the life of a believer, but there is sin that leads to death. And notice he's being specific when he mentions that. He's speaking in terms of eternal condemnation. Jesus indicated as much when he spoke Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 through 32. 
And the whole picture as we think of sin that leads to death is this heart unchanged by Christ. This persistent unbelief and unrepentance that leads to hell. Where a life is entirely characterized by unbelief. That's not the life of a brother or sister in Christ. That's the life of an unconverted person. Absolute denial of the need for him. Absolute denial of the truth of his identity and mission. Absolute denial of the necessity of Jesus. So we have our terms helpfully defined here. And so we are, as we walk right back into the text, if you see your brother, if you see your fellow believer committing a sin not leading to death, what are you supposed to do? He shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Believer praying for a fellow believer. When you know of the sin, that we don't pull our phones out and say, hey, I guess what I just saw someone such and such doing. Or hey, guess what I just found out about somebody. No, we put our phones down and we get on our knees before God and say, Lord, give them life. Remind them of the assurance of the forgiveness of sin and lead them to a place of repentance where they're walking with you. And that as we look here, even within the specific context of where we find ourselves, you're asking for God to give life, to reconcile, to display the reconciling power that He has, to demonstrate yet again that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Asking for God to give life and to restore what is broken, to breathe life into your brother and sister in Christ in a way that brings them back. Calls the prodigal home is meant to encourage others to assurance of life in Christ. But notice the emphasis here to those who commit sins not to death. This should lead us to a place of great humility as believers. Because if if your first inclination when you read a text like this, is saying, is to think, I know who needs to read this. You've got it all wrong. And you need to repent. We need to start right here. We all, I need this. We all need this. Lingering sin in the life of believers, sins of omission as we could call them, or sins of commission, sins of the mouth, sins of thought, sins that are not to death, but sins that certainly don't bring glory and honor to the Lamb who was slain for us. And so we're to take these benefits that we have of knowing Christ and the assurance that we know that He hears us, and not simply bring all of our, our wish lists before Him, but to bring one another before Him and say, God, Demonstrate your victorious life in them. But then he says this. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Notice again. He makes no reference to a brother or sister in Christ here. An unbeliever, an unconverted person, an unbelieving person who is blind to the truth, who is dead in their trespasses and sin, who is headed for eternal perdition. 
He says, remember, there is a sin that leads to death. He says, I do not say that one should pray for that. And at first we read this, and I think every one of our first inclinations when we read this is we say, what? Why would he say that? But if we walk carefully through the context of where we are, we'll see he has a very good reason for saying that. And then if you look and if you start to dig around in the the Greek words here, you know, he said in the beginning of verse 16, he shall ask and God will give him life. So that's one word that's being used there in, in terms of bringing a request before the Lord. But the word that he uses here for pray is a different word from the word that he uses earlier in verse 16. The word that he uses here in saying, I, I do not say that one should pray for that, is a word that's, being, that's meant to indicate this sort of earnest request from a privileged position. You've got the inside track, and so you're going to ask on the basis of that. As a child of the living God. As somebody who is an adopted son or daughter of the king. It's, in fact, the same word that's used in the Gospels whenever the disciples are asking Jesus to explain the parables to them that Jesus would not explain to those who are on the outside. What is he saying here? He's saying, so on the specific basis of belonging to him, we are told to not pray for this But remember the broader context. We are not praying that God would reconcile and restore someone to himself who remains in unbelief. We are not praying, God, forgive them anyway. Not using our privileged position to come before him to ask for things that we know, we we ought to know better, not to ask. To ask him to give life to someone who refuses to believe. The condition for life is to know Jesus Christ who is the life. The condition for the forgiveness of sins is turning away from your sin and trusting in Christ. We must not come before him and say, Lord, forgive them anyway. But this happens all the time, doesn't it? It happens more often than we're willing to admit, as if we have some sort of inside shortcut and then we want people to jump on track, or that we have the, the way in which we can just sort of pull people in. We hear it sometimes at funerals. Oh, he was a good boy. He must be fishing in that wonderful lake in the sky for that bass he never caught. But he never cared anything about Jesus, never turned away from his sin, and his life was full of unrepentance and unforgiveness. Every indicator of unbelief, and we say, oh, Lord, forgive him anyway. No. See, he doesn't say not to pray for the person. He says, don't pray for that. Don't pray that we would twist God's arm into doing something he has already told us he would not do. Don't pray that God would alter the means of forgiveness. As if he would change the way in which he has displayed himself. He says, don't pray for that. But we have every encouragement everywhere, including here, to pray that God would give life to an unbeliever. That he would bring them about to be born again. That pray for God to take that person dead in their trespasses and sin and make them alive in Christ Jesus. Don't say forgive them anyway. Say, God, lead them into everlasting life through Christ. That's the better way. 
Don't use your privileged position to try to twist God into doing something he ought not to do. No, pray that Christ would be glorified when lives are transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. Pray for new life, for glory to the Lamb who is slain. Don't pray, hey, forgive without him, because he won't. What clarity he's given us here. As we think about using the benefit of the access that we have before the Father through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, and saying, here's how you ought to use this. He says in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. He's not giving anyone a pass here. He's not saying, oh, well, God will get over it. No, he says all wrongdoing is sin. Then we must take sin seriously. Because in taking sin seriously, we see the need for salvation and redemption and hope and forgiveness. And you see the necessity of the gospel. You see the necessity of the fact that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've got a debt that we cannot pay. And so we require the eternal Son of God to come in the flesh, fully God and fully man, to live in perfect righteousness, to die on the cross for our sin and to rise from the dead. And that the only hope of forgiveness and everlasting life is in Him because of what He did and who He is. All about Him. He says, all wrongdoing is sin, but that's meant to lead us right into the hands of the merciful God, not to lead us into the place where we just try to make our own way. We're to have no confidence in the flesh. We're to run to Christ in repentance and faith. For the sin in our own life, as we are reminded from 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is sin that does not lead to death. Only because of our great God and Savior. Had he left us to our own, we'd all be condemned. What a, what a good God we have. To seek us out like this. So we can rejoice in hope. And that you ought to, O oh believer, rejoice In hope, rest in He who gives life, that whoever has the Son has life. Hope and assurance, even amid all your failure in life. You might have come into the church this morning just wishing and praying that nobody would ask you how your week was last week. Because it was awful. It was full of failure. You came in here just loaded down to the gills with your guilt. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I did this. I can't believe I did this. And here I am again. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, turn away from your sin and look to the one who says to you, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What hope we have. So enjoy the hope of assurance of life because of Jesus. But make sure you have this life for yourself. And then pray rightly for others. Because for some in here, by the Spirit of God at work in your own heart and life, you recognize the fact that you are on the wrong path. You're on the broad road that leads to destruction. You've given every excuse that you could possibly come up with about how great you are and your mom did this and your grandpa was this and everything else. But you know in your own heart and life you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. What mercy he has to offer you another chance today to know him.
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. As it's described even in Proverbs chapter chapter 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. What do you do? Repent. And repentance is not simply a turning away from. It is turning away from and turning to. Turning away from your own sin and any sense of your own self-righteousness, any way in which you think you would earn it yourself, and turning to Jesus who died on the cross for your sin and rose from the dead. That you would have forgiveness and everlasting life in in His name. The only way that is sure and certain, the only assurance of life that you can have in a life that is full of death is Jesus Christ who is the resurrection and the life. Won't you come to him today if you never have before? And for some of us in here, as we read this text, you're a brother or a sister, but you've got some entrenched sin in your own life. You have an opportunity now. You don't have to come up here to pray. You can pray right where you are. You're welcome to come if you want to. The issue is not where you go in this building. The issue is whether or not you go to God. Go to Him. Pray for yourself. Pray for somebody else. Pray that God would give life and cause somebody to be born again who you know is entrenched in a way that leads to death. However we respond, here today. May we do so in the only way that leads to the place of assurance, faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for passages of scripture that capture our attention because they're just so striking. Father, we pray that you would lead us to respond to you in a way that brings you glory and honor. Father, for the person who is in here right now who has never known Jesus as Savior and Lord, open their eyes to see they're on a broad road that leads to destruction. And Father, may they hear your voice call their name. As you call them out of darkness into your marvelous light, as you call them out of death and into life, Father, may they turn from their sin and trust in Jesus Christ, crucified on the cross and risen from the dead for their forgiveness and everlasting life. Father, pour forth life today. And Father, we come now confessing our own sins before you and recognizing the fact that we have such great assurance to come, knowing that through Christ we approach under the banner of your grace. So Father, lead us to enjoy the benefits of coming before you, of confessing our sin, because it means enjoying your forgiveness yet again. Father, forgive us for our sin and lead us in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.